right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, great to see you. Uh, if we haven't met, maybe you're new. Uh, so thankful that you're here. My name is Paul. I serve as the teaching pastor uh, here at LifePoint in Marion. Uh, again, just so good to see you. If you are a guest this morning, uh, one thing that, that I would ask of you, um, if you uh, see in front of you on the chairs, there's a QR code. There's a chance it's on the ground. Sometimes they fall off. Uh, take out your phone, open your camera app, scan that QR code. It will direct you to LP Guest. Uh, there is a digital guest information card. If you would fill that out, that would be awesome. We would love to have the opportunity to connect uh, with you. And we'll donate $5 to one of our partner ministries uh, just as a way of saying thank you uh, for doing that. Uh, well, today, it's a great day to be a guest. It's a great day to be here in general because uh, we are kicking off a new series called New. Okay? And in this series, what we're going to be doing is walking through uh, the book of Revelation. Okay? We're going to spend uh, 10 weeks um, in Revelation content. We'll be in the series for, for 11 weeks. There's a, a pause uh, in September. Um, and so as I say that, there uh, are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and we're going to spend 10 teaching weeks there. And so um, by nature of the math there, we're going to miss some things, right? We're not going to cover every detail of this book. We, we uh, don't quite have time to do that, but we're going to cover as much of it as we can. Now, as I say uh, we're going to study the book of Revelation, um, I know it's my tendency to, to like to turn the stage into a spectrum, um, so I'm going to keep doing that because it's helpful to me. Uh, when I say the book of Revelation, some of us are on this side of the spectrum and we're like, I love this book. Like, I can't express to you how much I love this book. Praise God. That's great. You've studied it. You've read it. You're very, very familiar with it. You know how to interpret it fantastic. Like, I'm pumped for that, and I'm hopeful we can, and prayerful, we can have some really good discussions as we go. That's one side of the spectrum. Now, the other side of the spectrum is um, Revelation's a book in the Bible. That's cool. Um, maybe we're not quite there. Maybe you are, and congratulations, you learned about a new book of the Bible today. Um, but some of us, I think, are on this side of, of camp where we say, you know what, I know it's there. Maybe you've read through it, and as you read through it, you were like, I mean, lampstands and dragons and bees, I, I'm thoroughly confused, right? And, and if that's you, I just want to say, you know what? It's okay, all right? It's okay. Uh, sometimes in this camp, um, there's a real intimidation factor to this book because it can be a little bit complicated. There can be some debate on things. There, there are going to be passage that, passage, passages excuse me, that we read, and I'm probably going to say, you know what? I'm not entirely sure. But here's what I think and base that on scripture, okay? And so the point is not to understand everything. The point is really Jesus and who he is and what he's doing, present tense, past tense, and future tense. And so we're gonna work our way through this book, and there's a lot of background and foundation that I could give you up front, a lot of different um, interpretive things that we could go through, through up front, but I don't know about you, but I know for me, I'm much more of a hands-on learner. And so we're going to work through the text, and as we work through the text, we're going to get into some, interpret, uh, some, some disciplines on how to interpret this uh, and what some certain things mean, because this is very symbolic literature, okay? All right, all of that being said, I do want to ask the Lord for help, because, boy, we sure need it, as always, um, but I'm going to ask the Lord for some help, and then we're going to get into the text, all right? Uh, Father, you're good and faithful um, that we get to sing together, and to worship you is such a blessing. Father, help us never take that for granted. Remind us what we're doing this morning. We're not attending an event. 
We're gathering as the body of Christ to worship you, Jesus, to proclaim your name, Jesus, to, to honor and glorify you. Now, Father, as we open your word that is breathed out by you, that is living and active, would you make it living and active in us? Would it penetrate our hearts, our souls? Would it transform us and make us into people who desire you, know you, and love you? We need your help to understand. By the power of your spirit, open our minds. Help us see you clearly. It's in Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. I'm going to read the first few verses here, all right? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by the sending of his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of these prophecies, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, of course, there is a whole lot to get in here, into here, and I'm going to first start with just the first section, the first four words of this verse, okay? All right, so the, the text said, again, in the first four words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we got to start out and thinking about is what is a revelation? What does that word mean? So in the original language, uh, the word revelation is, is interpreted to, from the word apocalypsis, okay? And when we hear the word apocalypsis, naturally what begins to, to fire in our mind, rightly so, is the word apocalypse because you hear it in, in that word. And so then oftentimes when we hear the word apocalypse, what do we think about? Zombies and nuclear bombs and like, you know, chaos. That's typically what we think about when we think of the word apocalypse. But here's the thing. When we think about that and then we think, oh, this is an apocalypse, and to an extent it's apocalyptic literature, but it's really important that we understand what in the world that actually means from a biblical sense. And so the word apocalypse is the uncovering of something hidden, right? The making known of what could not be found out ourselves. And so now suddenly when we read the revelation Suddenly we realize, oh, wait a minute, this isn't necessarily about zombies and nuclear bombs, okay? This is about an uncovering and a revealing of something that we couldn't find out ourselves. It had to be revealed to us. So what is it the uncovering of? Who is it the uncovering of? Well, it says of Jesus Christ. And so this entire book, church, is about Jesus, I want to get that out from the start. This book is about who Jesus is. It's about Jesus's identity. It's about Jesus's work today, tomorrow, into eternity. This book is about Jesus. Now it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is the central point and figure of the book of Revelation. Now we could read this a couple of different ways. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That could mean, okay, this is the revealing of who Jesus is. Absolutely. It could mean this is a revelation or an un, un, unveil, unveiling from Jesus or that this belongs to Jesus. Again, there's several different ways you can interpret that, but the point is this is about Jesus. Jesus is the central point. Now, continuing on, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Okay? The things that must soon take place. Now, Soon, oftentimes when we think of soon, uh, we think of what's for lunch after church, right? We think of soon as in, well, okay, maybe a, a day from now. Soon is like a max a month away, right? Certainly no longer than that. And so this is saying what soon must take place. And so we're like, okay, right now. But here's the thing. Soon is a bit of a relative term when you're talking about God. Second Peter 3, 
8, Peter says, says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And so when we're saying the things that must soon take place, I think we have to remember, wait a minute, God works on a different timeline. And this again was written 2,000 years ago. And so we have to be careful when we think about soon. All right? And there's all sorts of different interpretive ways that you can look at that, but we just need to get a frame of reference for the timeline that we're working within. Again, God works often on a very different timeline. Now, we're really making our way through things here. We're almost to the end of verse 1. Uh, he, he made it known, this revelation, by sending his angel to his servant John, verse 2, I told you we're really moving along now, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, right? Even to all that he saw. And so we know this from what this book is. It is from God the Father to God the Son, God the Son then reveals it to his, his servant, which is John, the Apostle John. If you're fam not familiar with him, he's one of the original 12 disciples, and he was maybe the, the best friend, if we can call it that, of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And then John is giving this uh, to the churches, and, and Jesus uses an angel at times, almost as an intermediary between himself and John. All right, now, verse 3, it says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I love that there is a promise of blessing, church, for this book. There is blessing that comes with it. Of course, there's always blessing in the Word of God. And, and don't get stuck on who reads this aloud. If you read this at home by yourself, it's not that you're not going to have blessing. But the point here that I really want us to see is that this is a letter to the church, it's a letter to common folk like me. And what that is really important to, to see is because sometimes when we read this book, we're like, it's, it's for like experts because this is very confusing stuff. And it's like, no, it was written to, to everyday folks, you and me. And so this is for us. This is for the church. And so let's just put out of our mind that this is an impossible book to understand. Okay. Again, just getting the, the, the foundation here. This message is going to be three hours long. All right. Continuing on, it might be, don't laugh. Um, verse four, okay, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, all right? And so now we get the audience. This is to the church. Again, I said that already, but we get it directly from the text. And now here's an interpretive uh, discipline that we can learn. I said we're going to learn as we go. He says to the seven churches in Asia. What we're going to see throughout this book, because it is a, of a literature style that is apocalyptic in nature, what happens is numbers are used to, to symbolize ultimate truths. Okay? And so when he says to the seven churches in Asia, we're going to see other numbers. We're going to see the number four used a lot. We're going to see the number 12 used a lot. The number seven, when you look back into the Old Testament, there are hundreds of references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, by the way. And so our primary interpretive lens needs to be from Scripture itself. The number seven represents a spiritual totality or wholeness. Okay? And so when he's saying to the seven churches in Asia, he's not just saying only these people, he's saying to the church. And the reason he's doing that, because it's for us. We didn't exist then, <laughs> right? But primarily saying, look, and he's going to address, he's going to actually list out seven actual churches and Jesus is going to address them. But again, it's a, the number seven, again, the spiritual totality, all right? Now, we're going to jump to verse nine, so we really are moving along. He says, I, John... 
your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so now we get the setting. We understand where we are. At this time, notice John says, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Tribulation means difficulty, it means distress, it means persecution. And so at this time, and most scholars agree that this was written in AD 90, roughly. Some have an earlier date, and you can debate that. The point here is uh, that John is writing this. There's persecution going on in the church. Uh, John has been sent to a prison sort of colony. Um, Think of it like Alcatraz. And this place is called Patmos, and so he's sent off to an island by the command of, we think, the emperor Domitian. Okay, and so, so why? What's going on in the world? What's going on culturally? Well, you have to understand that at this time, Domitian, again, if that's who we're talking about, but if it was Nero, for example, the same thing could be said. Domitian wanted to be worshipped as a god. And for the Romans, that was no big deal. They were polytheists, which means they believed in a plethora or a multitude of gods. And so if the emperor said, worship me as God, they're like, sweet, what's one more? Maybe he can help. I don't know. But the Christians, of course, they have an issue with this, right? And so they say, no, we're not going to worship you as God. There is one God represented as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God. We're not going to worship you, Domitian. And so Domitian said, fine, I'm going to kill you, imprison you, and send you to far off penal colonies. And they said, okay. So there's hardship. And I, don't, I think it's hard for us to wrap our mind around how scary this time must have been. Imagine for a moment we're sitting here in church and all of a sudden we get shut down and half of us get sent to jail and some of us get killed. I mean, that's the reality. This is what these people are walking through. And so now I want you to imagine if you're huddled in a cave, who knows where, and you're trying to worship Jesus, and we so take for granted the blessing that we have to do this publicly in the time and in the nation in which we live. What a blessing it is that we can do this without fear, praise God. But imagine they're huddled, they're terrified, they're scared, and all of a sudden this letter comes, and it's from John, and you're like, John knew Jesus, like, like firsthand, like they were, they were buddies. Imagine the encouragement that, was, that would have been a breath of life sent to this church. What does the Savior have to say? That's this letter, church. Like, let's get excited about that. Moving on to verse 10, he says, but these people blaspheme, uh, well, I switched letters. That's Jude. Here we go. Revelation. Verse 10. I was like, that's not right. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he's worshiping Jesus on Sunday. Just cool to see. Um, and I heard behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet. Here's again an interpretive detail, okay? He's using the closest thing in his mind that he can associate to what it is he's hearing. He's seeing a a vision, right? And it's like the things he's seeing, the things he's hearing, there isn't vocabulary for it. It's too glorious. It's just beyond comprehension. So he's saying, here's the closest thing I can say to make you understand a little bit what this was like. Symbols aren't untrue, they just help us understand truer realities. Okay, so that's what he's saying. I heard a voice like a trumpet behind me saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So again, he does identify seven specific churches, and there's a purpose for that. Again, this is to the whole church. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And this is usually where we're like, see, I don't get it. It's okay. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. There's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Church, this is Jesus' present tense. Just look at this. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is not meek and mild, flowing, probably didn't have that great of a beard, Jesus. This is glorified, magnificent, powerful Jesus. Don't mess with this Jesus. The bigger view of Jesus we have, the better. He says this, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, terrified. He is absolutely petrified of what he sees. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you, you have seen, those that are and those are not, and take, that take place after this. And for the mystery of the seven stars, and he's going to explain to us what we saw earlier, which is very helpful and convenient. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this is the picture that we get, okay? Jesus glorified, standing in the midst of these seven lampstands. And he tells us very clearly that these lampstands represent the church. And that makes sense when we flip through our catalog of biblical theology and we say, oh, of course, the church is to be the light of the world. It's like that makes sense, right? That's this symbol that represents something else. And so we see Jesus standing in the midst of the churches. Fantastic. Then we see seven angels in his right hand. And that's a little bit confusing. And frankly, this is one of those where we're like, well, I'm not entirely sure. I read many commentaries this week, and it always annoys me when none of the commentators seem to say the exact same thing, because I'm like, well, I don't know. But anyway, I'm going to give you a couple of different views on how you could interpret this. The angels of the seven churches in his hand. Some would say that these angels is, again, symbolic language to refer to pastors and leaders of the church saying, look, I hold the leadership of the church in my hand. You could make that interpretation. If you want to hold that to that interpretation, I'm not going to say you're wrong. Personally, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, (laughs) frankly. You You could view it that way. Others would say that these seven angels are almost like guardians of the seven churches, that they spiritually watch over the churches. But I don't know if we really see that in other places in the scripture, same as I don't know if we really see pastors or leadership being referred to as angels. So again, I want to just tread lightly, okay, with that. The other interpretation here that I've seen is that these angels in the hand of Jesus almost represent the overall sort of spirit of the church. What is the church teaching? What is the church doing? The sort of overall point of the church. Again, you could take that interpretation, but here's the point. When we get to points in Revelation where it's like, well, here's four different views. I think they're all valid. This is what we have to remember. Jesus is in the midst of the church. That's the main point. And Jesus holds the church in his hand. I think that's essentially what this text is saying. Jesus is in our midst, 
Jesus is holding us in his hands. And here's why that's really, really encouraging. Again, zoom back 2,000 years ago. Place yourself in the nice, comfortable chairs of the early church and think for a moment. That exercise we went through before. Domitian, if he finds out you're a Christian and you're not worshiping him as God, might imprison you, might kill you, might take your family away, might take your land away. Your life is over. John, he's had his friends crucified. History says that John was boiled in oil. Again, then sent off to this island. It's really easy to get overwhelmed with the powers of the world and think the world is out of control. To think that evil is so great that we have no hope. It's so easy to look at the world and and we should have a right brokenheartedness for the evil that exists in the world. We should have a right sorrow for sin that exists in the world. But this text tells us one thing. Jesus is in control. He stands in our midst. He holds us in his hands. What that means is that it doesn't matter what Domitian is doing, ultimately. It doesn't matter what evil forces exist in the world to try and destroy us, ultimately. What matters is we, church, belong to Jesus. Amen? That should change how we view the world. It should change fear. It should change paranoia. It should change our mind to say, Jesus is in control. I don't have to control everything. Because Jesus is in control, these hands can loosen their grip a bit. Doesn't mean it's not scary. Jesus is in control, and that's the point. And that points us to the main big idea of this entire series, something we're going to say each and every week, that Revelation is more about present hope than it is a future calendar. It's more about how do we live today, how do we live now Yes, we need to look forward into the future, but we need to not get distracted. We need not get distracted. We need to remember that Jesus is now, he is present. And that being said, within this book, oftentimes when we think about the book of Revelation, we think strictly about something called foretelling. Foretelling, okay, is is when you essentially tell what's going to happen in the future. And again, when we hear Revelation, that's what we often think of. And Revelation absolutely has foretelling within it. But Revelation also has something called forthtelling in it. Forthtelling is a command that is to be obeyed now. It's a direction. It's a apply this today. And so we have a balance of both. Sometimes we have foretelling. Sometimes we have forthtelling. And so now, as we see this picture of Jesus, and I'll remind you, What it says in verse 16, in his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That point, his mouth was like a two-edged sword. Isn't it it a picture of Hebrews 4, verse 12, right? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we get this picture of Jesus holding us in his hand, and yet we also have a picture of Jesus with a sword pointing right at us. (laughs) And we got to keep that in mind, because that sword can do some damage. This is what I think of it a little bit like C.S. Lewis's great work, Chronicles of Narnia. There's this little girl, if you're not familiar, 
And she, she learns about this character called Aslan, who is a lion who represents Jesus in these books. And she asks this question to the other characters of the book when she hears about this lion. He, she says, well, is he safe, Mr. Beaver? And Mr. Beaver looks at her and he says, of course he's not safe. Of course he's not safe, little girl. But he is good. And I think we need to hold that tension when we think about present tense Jesus. He is good. We belong to him. He loves us. He died for us. He wants nothing but obedience and worship of him, which is ultimately what's best for our souls. But he's not going to shy away from correcting us and from saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to pierce into your soul because this is ultimately good for you. This is obedience. He is a roaring, in a good sense, he's a lion. He's good, but he's not tame. And again, I think we see that picture here. Now, from here, what we're going to see in, in chapters 2 and 3 is Jesus is going to address the churches that we saw uh, previously, those seven churches that I probably messed up the pronunciation of. Um, you can write me a letter later. We can work through it. But He's going to address these churches, and he's going to, to give them a combination of great job and not good. Some churches get, well, actually, I think two, if I remember correctly, get a, you guys are doing great. Some churches get a really good job. You've got to address this. One church gets a, we've got, we got to fix this right now. But again, the point is, Jesus has these churches in his hands, this double-edged sword in his mouth, bringing to life Hebrews 4, 12. And now he's going to, to give us instruction to these churches. And this is where universally, yes, this is a different time, a different context, but it's true for us as well. And so as we're reading this, we need to have both a, a large view church understanding of what's being said. We need to consider the actual context and what these people are walking through, but we also need to consider how this applies to us as individuals and us as the local church here in Marion, Ohio, okay? So this is personal. This is some of these forth-telling moments. We're, I'm not sure if we're going to get to all the churches this week and next. I know we're going to cover one today. We'll see what we get into next week. Anyway, verse 2 of chapter 2 says this, Jesus speaking to the church, specifically at Ephesus, he says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. All right. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And so he starts with a commendation. He starts with a good job. The church of Ephesus, Ephesus is an epicenter of Roman civilization. We read about Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. There was this giant riot when people started um, not following uh, the Greek goddess of Artemis, and the entire uh, city's uh, trade and economy was impacted by people repenting, stop, stopping to worship false gods and worshiping the true God. There's this huge riot. And so Christians have this target on their back, Right? And Jesus encourages them. He says, he says, you've been patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake. He's saying, look, great job. I'm, pr I'm proud of you guys in a sense. If you're going through persecution, you're going through hardship, and you're doing it so that I would be glorified. Because one of the most beautiful ways we can glorify Jesus is when we remain steadfast in the midst of persecution. He also says to them, you didn't put up with false prophets, with false people who were saying they were apostles. And, and he tells us what those 
false people were, the Nicolaitans. He says that in verse 6. And we're not given a lot of information of who the Nicolaitans were. There's some different debate. But the, the most common theme that I've read here is that the Nicolaitans were trying to say, in a world filled of, of sexual sin in Ephesus at this time, they're saying, hey, you can sort of do whatever you want sexually. It's okay. And they're saying, no, 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 you, you can't do that. You've got to live set apart. You've got to live differently. And so Jesus is essentially encouraging for their sound doctrine saying you have stuck to sound doctrine, great job, good work. We need to pay attention to that, of course. Now, verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you first had. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Verse seven, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, he doesn't mince words. I have this against you, that you abandon the love you had at first. Interestingly, he doesn't exactly define this, which I find a little bit frustrating. (laughs) The love you had at first, again, I think there's a few ways that you could interpret that. You could interpret that, that this love for Jesus, that they've abandoned this first love that they've had for him. You could look at this as they've abandoned their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. You could look at this as they've abandoned their love for those in the city who are not followers of Jesus. Personally, I lean a little bit more toward that one because of his recommendation to them. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so there's a love problem here. Absolutely a love heart issue. And then the consequence of this is to me, frankly, terrifying. If, you, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is very clear forth telling. That lampstand idea, again, a light to the city, a light to the community saying, look, if you don't get in line here, I'm going to remove your ability to reach, to make, and to multiply disciples. You better take this seriously. You better repent and remember. Again, which one do they need to remember? Here's what I would say. No matter what it is, and again, he's not entirely clear, Every heart issue, love issue, stems from a love issue of Jesus. Every issue of the heart ultimately stems from an issue of where we stand with Jesus. And and I I recall Mark chapter 12. I don't have it bookmarked, which is annoying. Oh, no, never mind. I do. I take it all back. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus says this. Ask of the greatest commandment, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Loving God, loving people. And so this morning, where I want to challenge us is if you feel maybe this morning, you know what, I have a, I have a love issue And maybe it's a love issue of Jesus. Again, everything flows out of love for Jesus. We can't love others unless we first love Christ. We can't serve others unless we first fix our heart and our gaze on Christ. We have to absolutely do that. And the way we do that, I love what Jesus says. He says, remember. Remember. And here's what I would say to us this morning. Remember the gospel. 
is the solution to every spiritual problem. The gospel. We cannot move away or stray from the gospel. The gospel must be central to every aspect of walking with and following Jesus because in the gospel is the understanding that we deserve death and separation from God, but instead of that, we've been given life, forgiveness, and we're viewed as spotless, holy, blameless, co-heirs with Christ because of Jesus' righteousness. And so if you have a love problem of God, and maybe you're doing all of the right things, maybe you're coming to church, you're serving, you're giving, you're doing all the right things, praise God, but if you're doing that out of drudgery and duty and not out of a devotion to who Jesus is, your heart has been mixed up. Don't do the things just to do them. Do them out of a love for what Jesus has done for you. And when you remember that you were dead in your sins and trespasses and you deserve death, suddenly when you realize you've been given life in place of death, you say, no, I want to serve. I want to connect. I want to give. I want to do all of these things out of an overflow of an adoration and an appreciation for who Jesus is. And so if you're going through the motions, you feel like you're in a rut, take a break, focus your heart on Jesus. I want to meet with you. I want to walk with you. I want you to understand the depths and the beauty of the gospel and the depths and the beauty to understand that God could have just said, stay in your death, stay in your separation from me. Maybe that's for you. Some of us may be in a position right now where we're having a hard time loving others in the church. Here's what I would say to that. Jesus didn't save you, give you a new heart, give you all of these great works to do so that you would isolate yourself. As members of the body of Christ, which we are, we call this the church. The church is not this building. It's not these somewhat diagonal, straight walls. The church is a people. And we are a body of Christ that need each other. Think about that. You're needed. I'm needed. We're all needed. We're, to be clear, I'm replaceable. But we're all needed. Okay? We all have specific roles, specific gifts that God wants us to use for the betterment and for the pure functioning of his body in this world. And so you've been gifted. You have unique things to offer the body of Christ. And so if you're off isolating yourself, you're not loving the church. You're not loving brothers and sisters in Christ in the ways that you ought to. And and Jesus says to you, repent, remember the works that you did before. Third category, and I think this was in, in particular danger for us in the community in which we live. My concern is that we don't love those who are outside of the church and don't know Jesus. And again, maybe that's what he's saying here. Again, he doesn't say it clearly, so I want to tread carefully in making very black and white statements. But we live in a city where brokenness is really easy to see. It's not common to avoid certain stores and go to other stores. I think you know which store I'm talking about. It's not common to, uncommon to drive down the street and look at and say, oh, I just, I feel that. We should have a broken heart for the sin that exists in our city, and it's so easy to see. But our broken heart should not manifest itself in disgust or disdain. Our broken heart should manifest itself in how can I love this person and direct them to Jesus? Because here's the thing, when you remember the gospel, you realize you could have been right there. You could be that person. I remember soon after college, I played baseball at Ohio Wesleyan. It's D3, I was a pitcher, which means I really wasn't an athlete. But I played baseball there. Sorry for any pitchers in the room. You've been working that one for years and telling your wife you were a stud. But anyway, so 
I remember I had, I had to get shoulder surgery, and the only way the university would pay for it was if um, I got it at a certain hospital in uh, Columbus. And my brother at the time, he was, he was living in Columbus, and he was in a difficult spot at the moment. And so um, we had this apartment, and there was no furniture in the apartment. So look down, and you see these wood floors. Wood, wood, old, old place in Columbus, that was our, our apartment. And so we slept on the hardwood floor. And for whatever reason, I couldn't get a job. I just had surgery, and I was, I don't know, couldn't get a job for whatever reason. And we had many, many, many days where we really didn't have much to eat at all. We would eat eggs and beans, and my brother would play some music on the street, get some money and change. And I remember walking through downtown Columbus, and again, I was losing weight because I really didn't have that much food. And I remember looking at people who were homeless, looking at people who had been addicted to drugs, looking at people who were in every situation that in my head growing up is like, well, I can avoid that. And I remember thinking, I'm this close. I'm one bad break away. I'm one stupid decision away. Sorry. I'm one silly decision away. I'm one... I'm this close to being this person that I look on and say, get your stuff together. I'm no better. I'm no better. And the only reason I'm here today and I might look like I got my stuff together is because of the grace of God in my life. And so, when we look at this city and we see people who are hurting and people who are going just in difficult spots. We need to, to have eyes of, I don't want to condone or support or affirm sin in any way, but I want to have a heart of compassion because we could be right there. Only the grace of God gives you the life that you have. Only the grace of God saves you. And we need to remember the gospel as we go to reach the city for the gospel. And the way we do that is through our life groups, through serving this community, partnering with ministries that are doing gospel-centered work. And Lord, help us do that well. That's the point. So this morning, wherever you are, again, maybe it's a love issue of God. Maybe it's a love issue of others. Maybe it's a love issue of the city. I want, us to, I want to lead us into a time of repentance. Brad and Katie are going to come up. I want you to bow your heads and I want you to, to ask God, pierce my heart, that double-edged sword that's coming out of your mouth, Jesus, would you direct it into my heart to where I need convicted? To say, man, I've been, I've been walking in this certain way and Jesus, I need you. And so as you feel that, as you feel that sting, <laughs> The beauty of the gospel is that you can repent. And when you repent, Jesus doesn't say, how dare you? He says, I know. And I forgive you. Here's my righteousness in your place. And you can live in freedom from that. You can be a new person. You can be a different type of person. Let's pray together. Father, You know where every single heart is here. Father, for the one maybe here this morning who doesn't yet know you, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. If that's you and you, you, you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, I want to give you this moment to say, Jesus, I believe in you. And what that means 
is that you trust Jesus to take your sin, the penalty of your sin away, and you trust Jesus to give you a new life. I want to give you that opportunity. Jesus can make you new. For those of us struggling with just going through the rituals and the rules and checking off to-do lists, I want to just remind us of the beauty of the gospel. Again, for those of us struggling with loving others in the church, I want to remind you of the beauty of the gospel and those of us looking out in the world and being disgusted. Yes, we need a sorrow for sin, but I want to remind you of the beauties of the gospel. Father, we love you. We praise you. We come to you in Jesus' name.